There are many things I'm thankful for right now. I'm especially thankful for all those helpers who are going back there with the children. Isn't that amazing? People are, are so delighted in the Lord and what he's done for them. They're willing to leave this time and go and try to help those little ones understand the goodness of God. Honestly, that is an incredible place to be. If you have any desire to help out with the children, remember Jesus was very fierce about anyone who would try to keep children from coming to him. That was one of the few times he openly rebuked his disciples. And so he has a, a passion and a love for little ones. And so if you want to join Jesus in seeing him live out that passion, that they would know how great he is, we invite you to talk to Fiona. You can find out more information at our Connect Corner about what that might look like just a couple times a month, maybe once a month. could be sufficient to help a child see what God has done for them. Well, this morning we're going to dive into 1 Peter, so open up your Bible to 1 Peter. You're going to find it nearly at the end of the Bible. That's on page 1075 in that Pew Bible. And we always offer, if you do not have an English Bible at home, we would love for you to take that as a gift. Honestly, the Bible is the fountain of God's grace, and there's nothing better you can have than to daily be in God's Word. And we encourage you, bring it every week. You're going to want to have it open today because we're going to be going through the entire letter of 1 John. We're not going to read the whole thing this morning, but as we begin our longer exposition of this book, I thought it would be helpful to have an overview. Like we're flying over, we're going to look down from the heights, and occasionally we're going to dip down to look at some majestic canyons and some depths of glory that will be encouraging to us. But I want you to know what this letter is about so that as we step into it and and go through it slowly, you'll be prepared to see all that God has for us. Now, the theme of this letter is really found in the very last uh, chapter. Um, If you look at chapter 5, and then uh, there it says in verse, I'm forgetting my spot here, but he says that he wants them to know the true grace of God. And then he says, stand firm in it. In verse 12, I'm sorry, I lost my place there. I want to encourage you and testify that this is a true grace of God. Stand firm in it. The whole letter is an explanation and exposition of what is the true grace of God and how you can stand firm in it. So that's the theme of this letter, and that's why the title for the sermon is Stand Firm in the True Grace of God. As we step into this moment, let's pray together that God would help us to do just that, shall we? Father, we recognize this morning our utter dependency on you. It is evident to us that even sleeping, we had no part of our heart beating and our lungs breathing, but yet it happened the entire night. We're thankful we're alive today, but what we are especially thankful for, Lord, for those who are in Christ Jesus, you will sustain us. You will cause us to stand firm in that true grace. Open our eyes so we can see it this morning. Give us faith to believe it and to act on it that you might glorify yourself through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things about this letter that many people are familiar with is it it delves into the topic of suffering. And not just suffering in general, but suffering that comes for identifying with Jesus Christ. I recently heard that in December, a woman named Isabel was arrested in Nottingham. She was arrested because she was standing on the opposite side of the street from an abortion clinic. She was standing there alone. She had no signs. She was not speaking to anyone. She was quietly praying in her own heart. 
The police were called, and when they asked her what she was doing, she admitted that she was praying quietly in her heart. They informed her that there was a city ordinance against that kind of activity because it was considered hostile and threatening to women who might want to come to the clinic to seek an abortion. And so, though she refused to go willingly, voluntarily to the the police station, they arrested her and brought her in. Now, the council was quick to say she was not arrested for praying. She was arrested, in fact, for violating an ordinance of being too close to that clinic. But if you look at the ordinance, it says specifically that one of the hostile and threatening activities that is forbidden is prayer, even silent prayer in your own heart. She's currently facing four counts of breaking the law that she'll be tried here in February for praying. We have to ask the question, what else will our society bring against us? As Christians, we have to be aware that society is becoming increasingly hostile toward simply trying to live a quiet life that honors the Lord. Even that is offensive to the world. They don't want that because even that is saying, my loyalties and dedication lie with Christ and not with the ways of the world. Christians, we have to be ready in your own heart to be loyal to the Lord. But how can we do that? The the world will bring pressure on us. It may be an arrest like Isabel faced. It may be just disdain. It may be a, a look of frustration. It may come in open hostility verbally. We know that many of our brothers and sisters who are here from Nigeria, they could tell you about the northern part of Nigeria where Christians are rounded up in some cases and beaten in the streets because of being a Christian. In some places around the world, you can be shot. You can be put into a life sentence of working in a brutal work camp just because you're a Christian. Now, we're not at that point yet, praise the Lord. And and by God's mercy, he may not allow us to get to that point. But the question is, are you able to stand when persecution comes? And Christian, you may say, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if I can stand. And I think many people who walk into that situation, they don't know. But what they find is there's a true grace of God that will sustain you even if you don't realize it now. And that grace is something that we can hold on to and pull into our hearts and put into practice now so that whatever persecution comes, God will help you to stand firm in that true grace. This is an amazing letter, and it is something that we should all look forward to understanding more. Now, I admit we don't normally go through an entire book of the Bible, and so our tendency is to go through a few verses, a passage at a time. But don't worry, we're not going to be here all day. We want to spend time looking at some highlights of this book. So to help us get through this time, I have a a big idea that is really the purpose of this whole letter, and this is it. One Peter reveals three works of grace. There are three major sections of this letter, and there are works of grace, and they're revealed to us so that you will stand firm in God's true grace. That's why he's written to us. It is through these words, as we hear them and put them into practice, that we are given the grace, the strength to stand firm in them. The first work of grace is that God, through his true grace, creates a people. He creates a people. 
The second work is that true grace carries the people that God creates. And the third work of grace is that true grace confirms God's people, the last third section of this book. Well, God wants us to know that he creates a people for himself. And we're just going to look at a few verses as we go through this, but right at the beginning, God wants us to know that it is his initiative, it is his doing who becomes one of his own. Look at the beginning part there of of verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen, those chosen, the ones living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Chosen, there it is again, chosen. This idea is that not that God looks down the line and says, oh, who might be disposed to take me? Who is going to have faith in me in the future? It is a word that means apart from anything in the person, one has sovereign choice and chooses you out of everyone. In this part, as he works through this idea of being chosen and what that means, Peter is pointing to us that there's a certainty that we can have. This is the beginning of that work of grace. It, It gives you confidence that God has chosen you and therefore he's not going to let you fall on the wayside. So he, he begins by looking at the certainty we have. And then the second part of this first idea of God creating, he looks at the consequences that come about, the fruit that comes about for those whom God creates. He's chosen us. He's brought us to himself. And the only people who God chooses are the ones who don't deserve it. No one deserves to be chosen by God. I remember as a child, the playground choosing, we'd have... The two captains, I don't know how they were chosen to be captains, but they were always the captains. And they would then start going one by one and calling a boy to his team. And you always hoped you'd be called first, but I was never called first. And it came down to me and the other person, and it was always, oh, don't let me be last. And then they say, well, you can have Greg. Like, oh, so I wasn't chosen, I was kind of dismissed. But here's someone who is chosen because they have absolutely no ability. Because they know it and they're completely dependent on God's grace. God chooses us in that way. None of us deserve it. It is God who takes the initiative. He chooses not because of anything in us. He chooses because of what is in him. He loves to lavish his grace upon us. Listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed, or be highly praised. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, listen to this, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Do you know why God chose you? So he can lavish his love on you. So the world might see that he is a a great and kind and compassionate God. Your being chosen calls attention to how great he is. And we get blessed because of that. We get incredible benefits. God made that choice before the foundation of the world, before anyone even existed. And when God chooses to lavish his love upon a person, there's nothing that person can do to unchoose himself. God seals that person. 
Now, knowing this is crucial because when the world realizes you've been chosen, that you are one of those, you become an exile, you become an outsider, and they don't take kindly to you. They don't like those who are loyal to Jesus Christ. So they consider you as strangers and even as enemies in some cases. Well, this work of Christ, this creation comes to us. We get these blessings of First of all, there's a future inheritance that God gives to us. It's in verses 3 through 5 that these elect exiles, they weren't just looked upon with curiosity by those around them. We're reading about a people who were looked upon with disdain. They were persecuted and maligned. And so Peter wants to put in front of us something that will sustain you, that will help you to stand firm when that happens. And he brings out first, there is a, a future inheritance waiting for those who have been chosen. Look at verse 4. It says, We've been chosen into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, God created a people for himself. God did all this work, and then what do we get? An indestructible, unlosable inheritance. God loves to lavish this on us. This is something that as we look at and contemplate, it gives us strength. It is an inheritance that God is so determined to give to us. He, look at verse 5, He will guard you by His power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. See, the true grace of God is not just letting you know information. It is through this truth, He's making you firm in His grace. And there's a future impact. The future uh, inheritance has a present impact on us. Look at verse 6. It says, you rejoice in this. In this future inheritance. You're rejoicing now. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. So in the middle of this present joy, we discover a truth that will come up again and again. Not just in 1 Peter, but in the New Testament. And it's in that those two words, if necessary. If necessary, you suffer. And we think, is it really necessary that I suffer? We're going to look at this a little bit more, especially as this letter unfolds before us. But what this presents to us is that you can stand firm in God's grace if it is necessary that you suffer. The necessity means that if suffering comes, it is planned by God. It is designed by God. It is purposeful. There's an undefeatable sovereignty of God over the sufferings of his children. You see, God is not just the first responder at a crisis that he didn't expect to unfold in your life. He is one who is the architect and the builder of your faith and every detail involved in it. Verse 7 unveils some of the purposes of these various trials and why it's necessary. It says in verse 7, So that the proven character of your faith which is more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, and it may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The present joy comes as the trials accomplish their purpose, making us a people with a precious faith. See, just as God created a people, he keeps a people. And our faith is our response, our natural response to a sovereign choice. And that same faith given by God will prove to be indestructible. And ultimately, it's not to say, well done, good job, you had a great faith. It is to work out to the praise, the glory, and the honor 
of Jesus Christ when he's revealed. Now, honestly, it, for many of us, we hear about that and we think it's kind of like a consolation prize. Oh, really? That's what I get for suffering. But let verse 8 change your mind. Knowing that you've been saved, you've been saved to make much of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have this cry of all of God's elect. Look at verse 8. Through him, or though you have not seen him, you love him. And though not seen him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That is an amazing joy. This is what comes about when you are strengthened by his grace. It's a goal of our salvation is your exceeding joy. And why do we rejoice in this way? Look at verse 9. It says, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So in God's sovereignty and his wisdom, he decides one of the ways that we receive that joy is through the path of suffering. Remember, he's, he's trying to show us that we have certainty in his selection of us, that he's created us. And it comes out in an, a seemingly odd way, the last part of the section, and it comes through a past revelation. You see, we can be certain that we've been chosen. We can be certain that we will stand firm in the face of suffering because of what God has already revealed in the past. He talks about these prophets that were his chosen, authorized spokesmen. And what they did is they revealed to us God's thoughts on who we were and what he's done for us. And it wasn't just an effortless work that they did. It says that they worked hard. They inquired. They searched and carefully investigated in verse 10. Why were they doing this? Because they wanted to know what God was saying about how we can become a part of his family. They discover things like Psalm 22, where it talks about the crucifixion of Christ. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who on him is placed all of our iniquities, and we are set free and healed because of that. It was revealed to them, though, that this wasn't just for them. This was going to be for us in the future, for those who were going to be created. And so they were happy to announce this and preach it to God's people. And it's so amazing. Look at the end of verse 12. Angels even long to look into this, to catch a glimpse of this amazing truth. So God is creating a people, and he wants to give them certainty that they are, in fact, created in him. And he has these ways for us to have certainty. And then he wants to give us more certainty by showing us some of the consequences that come from following him. Consequences are these fruit, these proofs that we are, in fact, elect exiles. The first thing that it does, when we look at verse 13, is it causes us to become ready for action. We become sober-minded, serious about having our hope completely set on the grace that will be brought to us. That is what a Christian does. You set your hope. When trials come, you think, I don't know if I can make it, but you still turn once again to Jesus Christ. And one of the results of this is a holiness, uh, an obedience that feeds holiness and a holiness that feeds obedience. And it begins with a refusal to cave in to these, verse 14, these desires of your former former ignorance. And desires here are, are wicked lusts that we used to have until God called us out of it. God's active grace produces in us instead a desire to obey. And when we obey, we find that we are increasing in holiness. And when we increase in holiness, we have a greater desire to obey. This is the first consequence of being chosen by God. 
You grow in this. And it is a powerful statement. Then we see the next part is that we are given the power of God to walk in obedience through his word. Look at verse 25. It says, The word of the Lord endures forever, and this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. What did that do when it was proclaimed to us? Glance back up a couple verses in verse 21. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Do you realize that it is the preaching of God's word that saves people? They hear God's word come, and they, they, they perk up. They suddenly come to life, and they say, I want to trust Christ. And this is one of the consequences that comes, is that you are established in the word of God, which is why it is central to our worship time every Lord's Day. It is such an amazing word that it is living and enduring in verse 23. It will not fade like anything else. It will last forever. And then what happens is this starts to work inside of us. And then as we move into chapter 2, it starts to kill in us a desire for these wicked ways. And then we're like newborn babies. We desire the milk of the word. Not just to be fed, but so that we can grow up in every way to be like Christ. And then it talks about Christ. He was chosen and honored by God. But it reminds us in this section that he was chosen and honored, but it came through his suffering and his persecution. We have this one that we're going to grow up to be like, and if he suffered and he was persecuted Christian, you will be as well. But the same grace that sustained Christ is there for you as well. Now, verse 4 says, You will come to him as a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. And you yourselves, like him, will be chosen and honored by God. It's interesting that when children are born to parents, as they get older, people start saying, Oh, he looks just like his mom. He looks just like his dad. And then it goes beyond his physical appearances. There are actual mannerisms, ways of talking and, and acting that you say, Oh, I can tell that is his son. Likewise, when God's word is working in us, when his grace is active in us, we will grow up in every way to be like Christ Jesus. Even when and because of persecution in our life. And what it leads to is this honor that we're given is not that we become seated at God's right hand like Christ, but rather we become part of God's family. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. You are a royal, or sorry, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. That is what honor looks like. You are chosen to be God's people. But this isn't the kind of honor that you frame and you hang on your wall. This is an honor that is a calling on your life. You become, by your life and your words, a proclaimer of what God has done for you. You see, the honor isn't that God makes much of you. The honor is that you get to make much of God. What are we proclaiming? The excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You're God's people. 
It doesn't matter if you're considered an exile, an outsider. You are an insider of God's family. Oh, my friend, do you see how this grace and this truth will make you stand firm when everyone else walks away or the entire world turns and comes on you? This is what God does. You are called to make much of him. So here we have this first grace of God working in our life. He is creating us to be his children. And that knowledge causes us to say, okay, I can stand firm. If God began this good work, I am confident he will be faithful to complete it. There's a second work that God does. This true grace doesn't just create us, but it it carries God's people. This will go from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to chapter 4, verse 11. You see, God's grace is more than just warm feelings that God is kind to us. It is a power that will carry you to live honorably even when suffering. And that's really what this section is all about. You're not carried to float above the suffering, but to live obedient in the midst of it. And you see this really come out in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. To live honorably before strangers, before those who are not believers, is what we're called to do. Even if they don't think it's honorable. Even if they arrest you on the street for doing what is honorable before the Lord. Here's the reality. One day... Every knee will bow. We sang about it this morning. Every mouth will confess that Jesus is, Christ, Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. But at that day, they're not bowing out of joy and celebration. They're, they're bowing, finally admitting, he has beaten me. I cannot beat him. He has conquered me. I cannot defeat him. He has supreme power. They don't like it, but they must admit it. And dear friend, you too will bow your knee one day. You will stand before the throne of God and and account for your actions in this world. Or, Or you could bow your knee now. You could confess now that Jesus is Lord, that he has the rightful claim on your life. You could confess that you are living in open rebellion to him and that you know it deserves his judgment. And you could receive his forgiveness and then you could walk and live in a way that's honorable to the Lord even when your friends will turn on you for that decision. Why would you wait any longer? The certainty can be yours. This fruit, these consequences can be yours if you come to Christ. As we look at this section, he moves from more general ways of living honorably to more personal ways. First, it's living honorably in the civil world under our government, then in the workplace, and it ends up living honorably in marriages that when the spouse is hostile toward your faith. In this section, we see that the way we live honorably is by having an attitude of submission, of wanting to honor and please other people, but not at the expense of pleasing God. We realize at the heart of this that what motivates us is that Christ himself did this. He submitted to the civil authorities. He submitted to them by being arrested and going along with it. He submitted by allowing them to judge him and condemn him. He submitted to their authority, which was granted to them by him. He submitted to it by dying on the cross. And you see this come out so clearly in verse 24 of chapter 2. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. For by his wounds, you have been healed. Oh, friends, this is how honorable living looks. It is sacrificing our life for God's glory. And perhaps some other people will come to faith in Christ because of that. We are seeking to do good and to honor God even if there's intimidation and fear brought upon us. As it gets closer to that personal living out of wives and husbands in chapter 3, how can we do that in these intimate relationships? The text says to look back to the past and how these holy women in verse 5 of chapter 3. For in the past, the holy women put their hope in God. And that is the key. You see, when God has chosen you, when he's created you to be his own, one of the consequences of that is you can't help but hope in him. You may feel like all is lost and this is intense, but you still find something in yourself that says, I must hope in God, I have no other choice. If God doesn't come through and doesn't sustain me, all is lost. And that little sliver, that that faint glimmer of hope will sustain you. It's a living hope that carries not just the women, but the men as well. It says, husbands, in the same way as the women put their hope, so also put your hope as you live with your wives in an understanding way. We are supposed to also live honorably among those who are part of the family of God. And this is where it can get really difficult. Because we have personal preferences, don't we? Your personal preferences about how the sermon should be preached, about what activities we should do, more of this and less of that. We should be doing this, and it becomes so personal that we become offended by other people. It's so easy in this body of Christ to hold bitterness in our heart against other people. But one of the fruits of trusting in God's grace and standing firm in it is instead of pushing people away, we are drawn to them, we go toward them, and we seek to live our lives in a way that will be encouraging to them. Look at chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. When we stand firm in this true grace, you receive blessing and you give blessing. You become a conduit instead of a cul-de-sac of God's blessing. And that is an incredible grace. Oh, may God unleash more of this grace among us so that when we look at each other, we look at each other with gratitude that I can be seated at the same table as you. I can be counted as one of your brothers. That is what an honorable life looks like. But we move into this honorable life even while we're suffering in chapter 3, 13 through into chapter 4. This becomes a key theme in the letter. It's suffering. But see, God's grace, his true grace, will not just create us and his people. It'll carry us through the worst suffering so that we can even honor God in that time. Verse 17 unpacks this principle of suffering. It says, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The principle is not just that suffering should be done for good only, but sometimes it's God's will for you to suffer. This is so hard for us to get, but it's a bedrock of hope. Because when you you think you hit the bottom, and the bottom gives way, and you keep going down further, this is our hope, that it's God's will. So he's going to be with you even as you fall to the lowest pit imaginable. 
Even when you find yourself being pushed out and and mocked and ridiculed in social media, what this wording means for us, if it's according to God's will, is that it's planned and governed by God. It cannot go a second longer than what God intends for you. A person can't get one more word in than what God intends. God makes us confident that if it's his will, he will sustain you. This is an idea that's echoed in the scripture, 2 Timothy 3.12. I don't know if many of you have grandmothers who like to embroider. Sometimes they, they embroider Bible verses to encourage you, and I've seen them on pillows, I've seen them framed on walls, but I, I don't think I've ever seen this verse embroidered and hung up. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a a promise we must understand. It's not to say, sorry guys, it's just going to happen to you. It means that God is behind this. He's planning that the evil can never get the upper hand. Let me give you three truths about God that will help you to embrace this truth. First of all, God is good. God is always good. He will always do what's right and what's best. Secondly, God is wise. God knows every possible scenario. He will always choose the best one that is for your good and his glory. So he is good. He is wise. But here's a third one that undergirds them all. God is almighty. There's nothing that will happen in your life apart from which God permits or plans. It's all designed for his glory and your good. Now that truth doesn't make it easy but it can sustain you and give you an undefeatable living hope that you can trust God. This isn't a threat, Christian. It is hope that no matter what your suffering looks like, you can trust your Heavenly Father. You can trust Him because Christ Himself went through suffering on our behalf. Christ Himself endured such hostility from sinners, and He remained firm. He was the the perfect example for us says there in verse 18 of chapter 3, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. What an incredible good that Christ's suffering did. Now your suffering isn't going to do that kind of good for other people, but there is a great good that God has for you. But for right now, I want you to grab onto this. Because God has created you to be his people, you will stand firm in his grace. Because God carries you, you can stand firm in his grace. There's one last thing that I want you to look at that is in this letter for us. And that is that true grace confirms God's people. Now, if I want to confirm that you're my friend, I might do something nice for you. Buy you a present, take you out, do something special with you. But one of the ways that God confirms that we are his own is by bringing us into difficulty and trial. Because he wants to show you that you do not have the strength to make it through, but his strength is sufficient for you. What he does is he puts you in these situations such that as the trial builds and the persecution grows and you feel yourself trembling and shaking, you look once again to God and you find, why am I not being blown over? Because he's strengthening me. 
And in this moment, God is showing you that the evil is not stronger than his grace in your life. He's actually defeating the enemy, using the enemy's strength against the enemy to defeat him. It's much like a a martial arts expert. When the enemy, the opponent comes at them, they use the momentum and the energy of that opponent and then flips them over and the opponent is now down on the ground and the match is over and you've won. In the same way, God will take all the momentum of the enemy and all that is intended to come against you for evil and he will intend it for your good. There's nothing that the enemy can do that can disqualify you. But God will always sustain you in those moments. The reality for the Christian is that there will be suffering. It's an amazing story of an American pastor. In 1977, he planted a church with some other people. And 13 years later, the church was thriving. By 1990, he was expanding his ministry. God was blessing people through books. And then God started putting in him a conviction that he needed to do more to fight for the unborn lives that were being uh, killed in abortion clinics around town. And so he went to do peaceful protests in front of these clinics, and he was arrested seven times in a year for that. But then came the hammer. The abortion clinic turned around and sued him and some of his colleagues for that, and he lost a court case. And it was so much money, he did not have that money. And when he refused to pay, they said, fine, we're going to confiscate the money out of your paycheck. Get such a conviction about this, he did not want the church to have to give any money to the abortion clinic, so he resigned as the pastor. And then he began a ministry in which he took on the position that he only earned minimum wage because the government is not allowed to take wages from those who are only earning that level of pay. Well, there came another lawsuit not long after, and it amounted to $8.2 million in 1990. And as long as he stayed under minimum wage and lived at minimum wage, they could never take his money. Well, God did an amazing thing for this ministry. It began to, to grow and to flourish, and books that he wrote were suddenly bestsellers. And he, he gained all these royalties from the books, but he couldn't take the money, so he looked for other ministries to bless. He started giving his money away. And he had groups of people that helped him to know where to give this money. And there came a point in time in which 10 years expired, and that was going to be the end of his time in which he'd have to give the money. And that abortion clinic went to the judge and said, he hasn't given us his money. And so it was given another 10 years that he'd have to either stay at minimum wage or to give money to the abortion clinics. And so he chose to stay for another 10 years at minimum wage. By God's grace and through generous gifts, God kept their home in their possession. They lived a very simple life, but God continued to sustain them with joy in that suffering. If you listen to his story, he says, do you think that we lost when that happened? Not a chance. We won because we understood the grace of God. Finally, 20 years after living a minimum wage and supporting his family that way, his team came to him and said, Randy, we have given away $8.2 million to charities. And he realized that money that was supposed to go to the abortion clinic went and said to support God's work around the world. It was not easy, friends. But Randy Alcorn could tell you today that that suffering he endured confirmed to him that he was God's child. Because in the midst of that and all the difficulty, his love for God only grew. 
One of the ways that God confirms we're his children is that in the middle of this suffering and this trial, Psalm 34, verse 18, God is close to the brokenhearted, to those who are weak in spirit. When you suffer, the grace of God is upon you, and you will be able to stand firm in his grace. So here, 1 Peter, an incredible letter, and it reminds us that there are three works of grace so that you will stand firm. God creates a people. God carries those people, and he confirms they are his people through the very suffering that is intended to shipwreck your life. But you can trust God, dear Christian. 